everybody is finding their seats. <clears throat> Let me uh, just review the announcements. <clears throat> First of all, I'll be leaving next Wednesday, a week from now. So I will be here this coming Sunday, which is the, uh, I think that's the 6th of January, and I will be here next Tuesday night. It's not until Wednesday that I leave for Kiev, and then I return on Friday, January the 25th. Uh, Elber White is going to cover the two Sundays while I'm gone, and he will be doing communion the first Sunday, which is the 13th. So uh, that's that's all all squared away. On the Tuesday night Bible classes and Thursday night Bible classes, the two Tuesday nights I'm gone, John Williamson will teach, and then the other times uh, we've gotten... Uh, permission to show the videos from three of the sessions at pre-trib, which you'll find extremely interesting and informative. Each of the speakers is a uh, Jewish believer in Jesus Christ. They're involved in in various Jewish ministries, have quite a background, and they all had numerous family members who were murdered in the Holocaust. And so... um, that was the theme of the uh, conference this year, but they deal with a number of different topics that are significant and important for today, such as the rise of anti-Semitism, uh, a little bit historical, and some other things, and you'll find all of them quite quite fascinating. So the, those will be the other, uh, the other nights. Uh, we won't be having either a deacon's meeting or a men's prayer breakfast in January because of my uh, travel schedule. So that covers those announcements. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we are walking by the Holy Spirit, which is the uh, prime directive, we might say, for the spiritual life in the church age and that we are in right relationship with him. And only then are we producing that which has eternal value. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you have the opportunity to uh, confess sin if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that You have given us another year to serve you, another day to serve you, another opportunity to uh, mature and learn to enjoy our ongoing fellowship with you, our relationship with you, that it may deepen and strengthen in the coming year, and that to do so, that we will be mindful of the importance of spending time in your word, spending time in prayer, spending time Uh, studying your word and being fed the word through the teaching from this pulpit. Now, Father, we pray that you would uh, challenge each of us in the areas where we need to grow, that we might be responsive to what the Spirit teaches us in your word, 
and that as we continue to live our life that we might realize that all of our life is to be a part of our worship to you as we are uh, not to be conformed to the world but be transformed by the renewing of our mind and father we pray that we might recognize that all of the all of the glitter and all of the things that that uh, entrance us and that that give us opportunities to go and do that these things are often distractions from our our walk with you help us to discern the difference between the good and the great that we might make wise decisions and we pray this in Christ's name amen all right we're continuing our study and depending on how things go we may actually wrap up our study in worship uh, this evening. Last time we went through the corruption of worship that happened during the uh, end of the age of Israel, the discipline that God brought against Israel from uh, 586 until 536 uh, BC, then the restoration of his people. And so we're making a little bit of review from that as we transition into the church age and what we have in terms of New Testament teaching. So last time we looked at the corruption of worship, the rise of, of physical idolatry. Need to make that distinction between physical idolatry, which is the worship of gods and goddesses who are, uh, the scripture says, are simply the masks for demons that all religions other than biblical uh, Christianity is the production of demons and Satan. So we, when, as believers, when we look at things, that tells us that whether we're talking about uh, those who are involved in Islam, those who are involved in uh, false gospels or cults or Buddhism or Hinduism or any of the other religions we're supposed to be so uh, uh, tolerant of, that God is not tolerant of these things. We can love people, uh, but we are not to uh, be succumb to the kind of thinking that is present in the world today. There is one and only one truth. There's one and only one way, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of Scripture. And that doesn't mean that we act in, an, in a wrong or sinfully arrogant way about Christianity, but that we recognize the need to tell people about God's love for them and the Lord Jesus Christ and his work, work on the cross. But all of these abominations, all of the corruption is just different forms of idolatry, whether it's a physical idol or whether it is a mental, philosophical, ideological idol. We studied some re some of the reformations that took place uh, in the uh, Old Testament with Joash, Hezekiah, and Josiah. We looked at how God brought discipline on corrupt worship in the Old Testament, ultimately leading to Israel being taken out of the land. And then we briefly looked at the restoration and return, seeing that there's an incredible focus on Scripture. In Ezra and Nehemiah, as the people came out, uh, they... Uh, confessed their sins the, of the nation, and then you had thousands of people gathered together, stand for hours as the scripture was read, and as those as as priests within the crowd 
would explain and uh, further teach the scripture and bring it home to those who are there. It is always that return to scripture that changes people, that changes a culture. When we look at how things are going in our world today, there is hope, and that hope is the same hope it's always been, and that is the hope of Jesus Christ. And then we saw that with the close of the canon in around 450 B.C., that in the intertestamental period there's a rise of the synagogue. I'll say a couple of things tonight more about that, but again, this we see an idolatry that takes place there, an idolatry that's related to uh, the worship of tradition, the worship of legalism, and just the worship of ritual for uh, for ritual's sake. So what develops in the intertestamental period is the synagogue, which is basically a local place for teaching, for passing on to the next generation the traditions the, uh, of the scripture. It started out good, and then it became corrupted down uh, through the centuries. And actually, we don't really have what we refer to today as a full-blown synagogue until probably uh, 75 to 100 years before Jesus. It's uh, gen- generally believed that the roots of the synagogue go back to the time of the exile when the Jews are in Babylon. There's a lot of debate over this, but there's evidence in passages such as Ezekiel 11:16 and 8:1 and 14:1 and 33:30 30 to 33 that the the Israelite the, the Jews in exile met in the home of Ezekiel and maybe others and that this is how Uh, The traditions were passed on, the teaching of the truth of God's word from generation uh, to generation. Ezekiel 11, 16 says, therefore, and God is addressing Ezekiel, he says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, although I have cast them far off among the Gentiles, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet I shall be a little sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. And so some have gone to that passage in this phrase, little sanctuary, as a basis. I think that's uh, some, uh, you know, th- 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 there's not a lot of strength there, but there are other passages like Ezekiel 8.1 where Ezekiel talks about the elders of Judah sitting before him in his house. Uh, Ezekiel 14.1, the elders of Israel coming to him. Ezekiel 33, 30-33 uh, emphasizes e- even more that um, uh, that they came to his house and they would speak to one another even away from his house. And so it was it, it, the development of those communities within their, um, their exile in, in Babylon and that, that they continued to pass on the traditions. And by using the term traditions here, I mean in a positive sense. They would, would pass on what was in the Scripture. They would teach about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and, and so that the people understood their history and their background and their identity, and they understood what their sin was and why they were no longer in the land. And there were those during that time, such as Ezekiel, who lived for a while into the exile. Then there were other leaders we know about, uh, Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and 
uh, and others that lived and taught the people. We just have glimpses of, of these few things. So, so something teaches but when they get back in the land, the temple's in ruin, so they have to rebuild the temple. The people are scattered. There's not a lot of Jews that come back in the first return. There's about 40, 45,000. The next return is maybe fifteen or 20,000. And so it takes time to reestablish who they are, and you have to pass these uh, beliefs and the Scripture down for, to your children and to your children's children. And so they begin to set up structures for doing that uh, so that they would continue to not sin as they had sinned before in physical idolatry. And so they began over the centuries to establish shall we say, extra-canonical, that is, non-biblical ways to protect them from disobeying the commandments of the Torah. So in the law, in the Mosaic law, there were 613 commandments. And many of these are rather general commandments and uh, that, would, that were the foundation for case law. And questions would come up, well, we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Well, what does that mean to work on the Sabbath? And so they, then they would begin to debate that, what is allowable and what is not allowable. And before long, they're coming up with uh, 10 or 15 rules that uh, different things you can and cannot do on a Sabbath. And then as time went by, they would then build a second fence around the first fence, and this is what became known as the oral law or the traditions of the elders, as we will see. And so by the time you get to the first century, the time of Christ, before the destruction of the temple, we have uh, evidence that there were at least 480 synagogues in Jerusalem. Now, a synagogue did not need to be a large place. The tradition they built up was that there needed to be at least at least 10 men. Now, where do you think they got the idea of 10 men? That's called a minion. And so you have to have a minion in a community, 10 men, before you can organize a synagogue. Well, a synagogue is referred to as a congregation, and where do you find the f first use of the word congregation in the Old Testament? Basically, a word that's used just refers to an assembly. And the first time it's used it by, is used by God in reference to the ten spies that went into the land that when they came back, they said, well, we can't conquer it. And so God refers to them as an assembly. So that means that, that this was rabbinical reasoning that meant that you you needed to have at least 10 to have a a congregation and so that's how they came up with the number 10 and so a, a synagogue didn't need to be a very large place it was an educational center and in and things developed traditions developed around that as as time went by but it was a place for the community to meet for them to worship, for them to pray together, for them to study Torah together and and to learn and to educate the adults as well as to educate their children uh, in in Torah. As time progressed, um, this took on, especially after the temple was destroyed, the synagogue took on a much more significant 
uh, meaning. But what is emphasized is that there's two sources of authority. There's the written law, what we refer to as the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then, then the idea grew up in the intertestamental period that God had not only given the written law to Moses, he, he gave an oral law to Moses, and that this was passed down by word of mouth from generation to generation, and this becomes known as the tradition of the elders. Now, there's no biblical support for that. This was just something that was generated during the intertestamental period. And this is what is referred to several times in the New Testament. For example, the Pharisees are challenging Jesus about the practices of his disciples, and they ask him, why do your disciples transgress the traditions of the elders? That's the oral law. That's not the written Torah. So because they wouldn't go along with the pharisaical interpretation, the oral law, then they were in a conflict with, uh, with Jesus about the, these principles for washing hands and how to do it and how often to do it and that kind of a thing and the particular blessing you had to say over the bread and all of those things got involved with it. Galatians 1.14, Paul refers to that as well, and he says, as I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So that the oral tradition and what became known as this tradition, which eventually is written down and organized as the Mishnah in the, uh, by the end of the 2nd century, early 3rd century, about 200 years after Christ, by someone called, a rabbi called Judah Hanasi or Judah the Prince, and this, the Mishnah then becomes as authoritative as the Scripture. And then later their commentaries are written on the Mishnah. That becomes known as the Talmud. And the Talmud becomes finalized several centuries, uh, several centuries later. So that if you're studying Judaism, you don't study the Old Testament. You study the Mishnah and you study the Talmud. Because the Mishnah and the Talmud will tell you what the Old Testament meant. And this, this is the same pattern we see with, with re, the re, religious Christianity as opposed to biblical Christianity, religious Judaism as opposed to biblical Old Testament Judaism. What you see is, is people emphasizing another layer of tradition. For example, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they believe they have an oral tradition that has been passed down from the time of the apostles, and it is this oral tradition they have is equally authoritative to the scripture. So when you come to, and, and what always happens is that the word of man eats up the word of God. And so what happens is the word of the, the, the oral tradition always supplants the written tradition. And so this is, it's, a, it's always an attack on the written written word of God. But you see the same thing also in Roman Catholicism where you have these decisions of the bishops and the, the scholars of the church and, and the, the decisions of the popes down through the centuries. That becomes the oral tradition so that when uh, you study, you go to Catholic seminary, you go to Catholic uh, uh, school. For example, I went to University of St. Thomas here for a master's in philosophy 
uh, they study they don't study the Bible, they study the church traditions. In fact, I was in one one class, and there was a nun who sat next to me, and I made some comment about, well, haven't, don't you know this from the Bible? And she, she nudged me, and she said, we're Catholics, we don't read the Bible. And you see here the same, I've heard the same thing many times from my Jewish friends. You know, we, we, we read the, maybe something in the Torah, uh, whatever the reading is for the Sunday they go to, uh, they go to, uh, go to services on Shabbat, but if they don't go, they don't read it, and they're like a lot of Christians. They may know what's coming up on Sunday, but they don't read it either, and so they just listen to what the rabbinical interpretations have been, and they never read uh, read the original. So the synagogue has developed. One of the oldest archaeological finds we have of a synagogue is the synagogue at Magdala, which is where Mary of Magdala, Mary Magdalene was from. This is between Tiberias, just north of Tiberias, about halfway between Tiberias and Capernaum, which is where Jesus lived during much of his uh, three and a half years or three plus years of, of ministry. And this is a picture of what it looked like when they first excavated it. And we'll see this um, temple uh, stone or table. This is what the Torah would have been laid on. It's quite quite magnificent, and uh, I've been there on a couple of different occasions. In fact, we took the uh, the Israel group this last uh, this last June there, and so this is uh, the the synagogue. And uh, as you come to a synagogue, they would emphasize as a service in a synagogue typically would emphasize the reading of scripture. Scripture was still central. That's that's one thing that we must understand is no matter what aberrations there might be, when it comes to worshiping God, what is at the center uh, is the word of God. It is studying the written word of God. And so there would be the reading of scripture uh, from the law as well at that time, as well as from the prophets along with uh, exhortations and prayers, and they developed various uh, various blessings. Uh, these were not nearly as glorious as the t- temple. It wasn't to replace what was going on at the temple. It was basically a community center at, and a study center uh, for the learning of Torah. And so this was important in the different communities because if you for example, had some defect, you were lame or crippled or blind or something that rendered you uh, ceremonially unclean and you couldn't go to the temple, then you could go to the synagogue because there weren't the restrictions there and you could study the Torah and and learn about God and learn God's word. Uh, At every synagogue, you would find a, a mikvah, uh, this is a, we've studied these before, these were ritual baths. And so you would have a, a place, of a reservoir for holding water, and then there would be a way to walk down and a way to walk back up that wouldn't be the same path so that once you come out of the water and you're clean, you're not going to walk where you had walked when you were unclean and and be defiled. Further, they would have, uh, so they would either have a water reservoir uh, at the synagogue or maybe nearby. Inside of the synagogue, there would be, and I don't see evidence of it here, but this area up here would have been the bima, that's the raised area, 
and that was uh, the area from which a, a homily or sermon might have been been preached. You would have uh, you you would have a few benches, but you were supposed to stand. The benches were for the elderly. Everybody else stood for the whole service, and they didn't last fifteen or twenty minutes. Okay, so you would have to stand for the whole service and focus and concentrate, and there would be a lot of of recitation, including all of those that were there uh, reciting uh, Torah from memory and reading Torah from memory. There were some seats for the chief uh, elders uh, where they would sit, and there was a place that we'll look at in a minute called the Seat of Moses, and that was very special, and that is where the rabbi would sit. He would see if you go to I don't know why we got it backwards, but if you did it the way they did it in the synagogue, the the rabbi would sit and teach and everybody else stands up. I like that. I don't think that would be very popular, though. Uh, So uh, that's and the focus again was on on teaching. Now, at the Magdala Synagogue, they have uncovered this table, and it's interesting that on the front here, there, right in the center, you can see the carving of the menorah. This is the oldest known carving of the great candlestick, the great menorah that was in the, in the temple in Jerusalem. It was designed to remind people of the temple in Jerusalem. For example, on this side you see uh, various columns, and this pictures the colonnade uh, outside on the entryway the, around the edges of the, court, of the courtyard of the, of the temple in Jerusalem. And so this, all of this was reminded, this is quite an intricate uh, thing, and it's, uh, it's really neat to look at this. It's the only thing of this nature that they have uh, that they have discovered there's also and we've got a picture and I didn't get it a uh, picture of a the stone seat of Moses that was discovered at Chorazin in the in a synagogue there and when the rabbi would sit there as long as he was re- that's where he would sit and he would basically talk about the written law not the oral law this is the seat of Moses, so he's speaking about what Moses gave. Now, if he, when, when they gave the homily or they talked about uh, application or other things, well, then you're, they're going into something beyond the Scripture, and they would uh, be elsewhere on the bima in order to uh, communicate that. But corruption developed then, just as it does now, because man is corrupt and we don't like the truth. There's always the attempts to introduce human works and human morality into spirituality. So what happened during the intertestamental period is that the priests failed to teach the the Scripture. The ritual was not explained, and so what happens is uh, is you have people going through the motions and they have no idea what the significance is for what they are doing. It is just the ritual itself that becomes uh, becomes important, and so worship becomes just formalized and is rather empty. Also, it's centered on legalism rather than a relationship with God, and so it was more important to uh, to get specific details right as than than the shall we say, the spirit of, of the law. 
We'll talk about that in a couple of examples with Jesus in a minute. So uh, they add also they've added human traditions. So legalism becomes the main problem now, and legalism just another form of idolatry where you are setting up human ideas and human thoughts and human traditions to have the same authority as God's revelation. And so basically you're worshiping man's ideas rather than God's ideas. And so with the coming of Jesus, there is a transformation of worship, a transformation of worship. And what happens, first of all, as we, that we see is that Jesus is the personification of the dwelling of God among his people. That's the first point. Jesus now in the incarnation is God in flesh dwelling among us. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and well, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. A second thing that happens is that as Jesus enters into this culture, we need to understand something about the nature of this culture because it's not that different from the culture around us or the culture into which Christians have gone at any time in human history. It's a culture that has distinguished on its own terms a religious elite, that there are certain people who are the ones who speak for the religion and others that don't. And we have the same thing today. If you've ever noticed, when you when you go to uh, the Houston Chronicle every now and then and there's some issue that relates to, um, to Christianity, they always go to the liberal groups of... of um, uh, maybe it's uh, professors at University of St. Thomas or maybe it's a professor of religion at the University of Houston or it's a pastor of some liberal, um, some liberal church here in town that doesn't take the authority of the Scripture, um, doesn't believe in the authority of Scripture, doesn't believe in inerrancy or an infallibility. Uh, recently, you know, there was, there was a statement made by... Um, uh, uh, Ed, Ed Young at Second Baptist about the nature of the Democrat Party, that they were a godless party because they had uh, basically removed God from their platform. They did that in 2012. If you Google or search, which I did, if you take their current pla- uh, platform and you, and I copied it into Word, and then I searched for God and uh, found it, found God, uh, God's name three times, so it's not out of the Democrat platform. But he basically made a very accurate statement that the Democrat Party is the party of the devil and all of their uh, positions are anti-biblical. And he was right on. And he did this as he was giving closing prayer at a political rally. He inserted some remarks. And so rather than going to the Houston Area Pastors Council, which is... Uh, the organization of conservative evangelical pastors in the city. The Houston Chronicle went to people who don't believe the Bible is the Word of God, don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, don't believe in miracles, don't believe in the authority of the Bible in any way, shape, or form, don't believe in sin the way the Bible teaches it. And they asked these fools, and they are fools biblically speaking, they asked these fools what they think about 
Ed Young, and of course, they all say very nasty things. And some guy says, oh, well, we just have to love him and God will fix it. You know, just the pious garbage that you hear from from, from liberals. So um, this is this is typical of any pagan culture. We have those who are legalists. We have those who are ritualists among churches. We have those who are liberals who reject the authority of Scripture and substitute their own authority. And we have a large number, vast number, who are just secular and pagan and think all religion is horrible and is the and, and they blame religion for all the wars in human history. It's always interesting how they conveniently ignore all of the wars since the middle of the 19th century, which were not fought for religious reasons, but were fought mostly by by socialists and communists who were seeking to exert totalitarian control over and enslave other people. But they ignored that, and more people were killed and enslaved and and harmed by the war since the mid-19th century than all of the religious wars in history. So uh, once again, the left lies about history because they choose to rewrite history in their fantasy about about life. So Jesus enters into a culture at that time that is not unlike ours. They were legalists, they were ritualists, they were liberals. The Sadducees were very liberal. There were those who were just secular and they, they wanted to cozy up to Rome. And Jesus is going to present the truth in the midst of this, this uh, uh, mix of different beliefs. Third thing I want to say here is that uh, not much is said about worship in the New Testament. We spend a lot of time talking about the Old Testament, and there's a reason for that, is that the New Testament doesn't say much about worship at all. So there's not much we can go to. The terms, the verb proskuneo is your primary word for worship. It's used some 60 times in the New Testament. It means to bow down. It means to do obeisance. It means to worship. That's how it's usually translated. It's used 33 times in the Gospels and Acts. That's narrative. And mostly it's talking about worship of God and the temple and uh, sometimes it's it's personal, but it's in that narrative function. It's used three times in the epistles. Now that's important because the gospels were not written to teach church age believers how to live the spiritual life of the church age. The epistles were, and yet worship is used only three times. Hmm. What does that mean? Well, it means that essentially worship has to be understood from that Old Testament framework. That, that it has the essence of what makes worship, biblical worship, hasn't changed from the patterns we've studied as we've gone through the, the Old Testament. The English word worship is used some 77 times in the... Oh, I skipped part of that. It's used three times in the epistles and 24 times in Revelation. We see uh, the angels, the 24 elders. We see various other groups bowing down and worshiping God uh, in, the, um, in, in, in heaven. Uh, the English word worship is used some 77 times, 45 in the Gospels and Acts, 24 times in Revelation, and 8 times in the Epistles. So it doesn't always translate proskuneo. Sometimes the English word worship is, translates this next word, sabadzomai, which is used for reverence or devoutness 
or piety. Asabea is ungodliness. The A prefix means not or un. So that word is is used, and there's also uh, uh, other words for uh, like turgos, which is has to do with spiritual service, and it, sometimes it's translated worship. So the English word worship uses some other words, but basically, uh, it, little is said. Now, why is that? I think part of it is because you, to understand worship, we have all the pictures we need in the Old Testament. And number two, it's living out our spiritual life. And that's what we're going to see. It's living out our spiritual life. But we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as the writer of Hebrews says. We are to come together on a regular basis and not stay home. This is why you can't have a church with just sitting out at home on the Internet. Now, that's not saying that it's wrong for people to sit at home and live stream. Thank, thankfully, people can and do because there's a lot of folks who they don't get who don't get home from work in time to then get get to Bible class, but they need to be regularly here, for example, at least on Sunday morning, worshiping together. A couple of examples of worship in Revelation, Revelation 4.10, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne. And Revelation uh, 5.14, the four living creatures said, amen, and the 24 elders who represent the church worship him, bow down and worship him. So that gives us some background. Very little is said about worship in the epistles, but aspects of worship are mentioned, as we'll see, such as giving, reading of Scripture, prayer. All of those are part uh, of worship. Now, the next thing I want to look at is Jesus in the setting of worship. He spends a lot of time in worship settings. He's in the synagogue. He's doing healing in the synagogue, healing on Shabbat. He goes to the temple. He doesn't miss any of the feast days that are where everyone is required, every male, Jewish male is required to go to uh, go to the temple. He is always there. Now, I often run into this where you see some uptight, self-righteous legalist who's so proud of his grace orientation and his understanding of truth that he can't see his own flaws. And they'll say, well, I'm not going to go to XYZ's church because they don't dot that I just the way I think it ought to be dotted or this T the way that ought to be. This T isn't crossed the way I think it ought to be crossed. Now, there are significant reasons for not going to most churches that are around today that have to do with with significant doctrinal error. But too often what you find is people who just think, well, because they don't do it all right, I can't show up at that church. But Jesus showed up in synagogues that weren't doing it right. He was there. Jesus showed up in a temple that's run by apostate priests that he's always in conflict with. They're going to be some of the major movers and shakers in getting him arrested and crucified. And just because the people that were there were uh, wrong and were apostate, Jesus, although he does confront them on a couple of occasions, it doesn't keep him from going to the temple. He continues to call the temple his father's house in John 2.16. 
even though it's as apostate as, as, as it can be. When he was 12 years old, in Luke 2, 41 to 50, he goes to, with his parents who every year, the text says there, they went to observe Passover in Jerusalem, and he goes with them, and he gets separated from them in the crowds, and they get on the caravan to go back to uh, back to Nazareth, and it's a day or so before they realize he's not with him, and so they turn around and go back, and they find him sitting in the courtyard of the of the temple, uh, having a discussion about the law with the uh, chief priests and elders, and they're confounded by his by his questions. And when they ask him, "Well, why why are you here? What are you doing?" He says, "I have to be about my father's business," and that was the place of his father's business. And so because that was the temple and and in other times the synagogues, even though they didn't get it right, Jesus is there because he is the one who is standing for the truth and can have an, an impact. And I told people for many years that sometimes you have to uh, put up with some things that aren't the way you would like them simply so you can have an impact in ministry and serve the Lord there. But I had an example years ago where a man wrote me and said, I understand what you're getting at. I understand the importance of being involved in a local fellowship, but I live in a small town in Vermont, and there's four churches, and the best one doesn't believe in the literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus. That's the best one. And he said, I just can't imagine that I should be taking my son there uh, so that he can have anything positive. I've said, of course not. I mean, it's it's... That, that's not the idea, but there are too many people who, because of one aspect or another, won't go to a particular church. And I've had people who have uh, heard what I've said, and they've gone to local churches and that they could, that they could accept for the most part, even though it wasn't the, the ideal, and they've been able to have wonderful ministries in those churches. I know of one lady in Australia, who goes to a very liberal church, but she's been able to get involved with a group that is ministering to Muslim refugees, and she's got a ministry for scripture to that group. So there's a lot of ways in which we can can get involved. If you go to a church that's less than good, that's a C minus church, that's why we have the internet so you can get good solid teaching and you can under, understand the truth, but you never know how many other genuine believers might be at this mostly apostate congregation, and they're just looking for some, hoping that somebody else who believes the Bible might show up and cross cross their path. So, this is what we see going on with Jesus. He's constantly in the setting now. Uh, he, Luke chapter four. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles. We're going to see one of look at one of his visits to synagogue. Many times Jesus goes to synagogue. So in Luke chapter four, he is. We're going to learn a little bit about what happens in Luke four sixteen. So we read. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was. See that tells us that that his habit pattern in life was to go to synagogue every Shabbat. As his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and on that day he is, he is asked to read 
from the reading for the day. Now, I'm pretty sure Jesus knew that's, that that was what was going to be read, and he knew exactly what he was going to read and where he wasn't going to read, and he set this whole thing up because he's making a, an important point. He says, so he came to Nazareth and goes into the synagogue on, on Shabbat and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And so rather than read what he, just the part there, I'm going to skip over to Isaiah 61, which is the passage he's reading. And it starts off, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. See, that's all talking about those who are um, the brokenhearted. They're, They're all the ones who are reaping the consequences of sin. They're captives to sin, and they're bound to sin. And he says his purpose was to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, which was understood to be a reference to the coming of Messiah. But he stops there. He doesn't go into the next part. And now all of this was one prophecy, but it's really talking about two different times of fulfillment. The rest of it talks about his return when he comes to rule and to reign, and that is the day of vengeance at the end of the tribulation, uh, at the end of the tribulation period. And so, when we when we read this in in Luke, we see their response that comes up after this, and he says, uh, after the, at, after he reads to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth, but they said, Isn't this Joseph's son? He said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. They've heard about the healing. So here are some things we learn. That in the previous verses leading up to this, we learned that Jesus, back in verse 14, then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And news of him went out through all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, um, and he was glorified by all. So he's led by the Spirit. He goes to these various synagogues being led by the Spirit to minister to those in those those synagogues. And he is uh, healing them of various diseases and their various uh, miracles that are taking place. And he goes to this specific synagogue on this specific day to read this specific Parashat. That's called. That's the portion of scripture that they are reading. We learn that there is an attendant which fits the the pattern. There's uh, uh, someone who is in charge. He brings brings him the scroll, and then um, he uh, he's handed the book and he opens it and he reads from it. And when he finishes, 
he closes the book or the scroll and gives it back to the attendant and he sits down. He would at that point sit down in the seat of Moses because he's going to talk about the scripture and interpret the scripture. And so this is what he did. That's the centerpiece of the worship service in, in the synagogue. And so he answers their question. He explains it. He interprets it. And then he tells them that today the scriptures is fulfilled in your, your hearing. And then they uh, begin to um, interact with him. And they reject him. And, and so as a result of that, uh, he is going to leave. Down to verse 28, all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. So this is a hometown crowd, and they have, uh, they have rejected him. Now, Jesus, as Jesus comes, he doesn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill the law. He, it's interesting as we go into the next section, which I've just called Jesus in the temple, we read that Jesus cleansed the temple at the beginning and at the end of his ministry. John talks about a cleansing at the beginning of his ministry. The synoptics talk about a, a cleansing at the end of his ministry. Liberals say, well, they just got it confused. It was only one cleansing. But the reality is that at the outset and at the conclusion, Jesus comes to Jerusalem and he cleanses the temple because the temple is the house of God and so he is going to cleanse it uh, because of his uh, role. It is his father's house. There were other times when Jesus shows his support for the temple and for the Mosaic law for written Torah. He heals a a leper uh, early on and he instructs the leper, don't tell anybody, But go to a priest, all in obedience to the law. If a leper were healed, he would have to go and report it to a priest, and then the priest would take note of that so that he could then be admitted that that he's been cleansed of the leprosy. And among the rabbis, they believed that this was a unique sign that only the Messiah could heal someone uh, of, of leprosy. And so Jesus sends him to the priest for two reasons. One, that's fulfilling the law. That's doing what the law said to do. And second, it's going to force the priest to open up an investigation to see if this is, this is true. So he's giving evidence to the priest of, of who he is. And he's t- also teaching something, and that is that he is the one who cleanses people of sin. He is the one who makes it possible for people to come into the presence of God. And this is, again, uh, taught in several of the other episodes, but we think of the ten lepers in Luke 17, 11 to 19, and they are cleansed, and more evidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He's able to heal them, but he is taking those who are outcasts, those who are unacceptable, unclean, can't get into the temple, and he is the one who makes them clean so that they can then uh, worship God. Uh, You have the example of the woman with the uh, hemorrhage, with the blood flow in Luke 8, 43 to 48, and this has gone on for 12 years, so she can't go to the temple to worship. She can't praise God. She can't give thanks to God in the temple as, as she should, but now she's cleansed, so Jesus is the one who opens the way to God. All of this teaches that grace is at the center of worship and that worship is a response to grace. Uh, 
And it illustrates for us again that those who have not been cleansed cannot worship. God writes the rules. There has to be a cleansing from sin before people can uh, worship God. In Matthew 5.17, we learn that Jesus said he did not come to break the law but to fulfill it. So in Matthew 5.17, we read, Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. That describes the whole of the Old Testament. Okay, there are three portions to the Old Testament. There's the law, the first five books, there's the writings, and there's the prophets. In, the, in Hebrew, the prophets are made up of the former prophets, we, we would call Joshua and Judges and uh, Samuel and Kings, and then there's the latter prophets, which are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the twelve. Daniel was part of the writings. So the term law and the prophets refer to the whole Old Testament, the 39 books that we have of the Old Testament. He said, I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. Now there's two senses to how they use the phrase to fulfill. One is he comes to fulfill the law by obeying the law as no person had ever been able to do. He is going to completely and totally obey the law. But there's another way in which that idiom was used, which I've recently discovered uh, among the rabbis, and fulfilling the law meant to interpret the law. And that really sets, sets up as a significant meaning in the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus is going to, uh, is, is explaining and interpreting the law from God's perspective in contrast to the interpretation of the Pharisees. So he said, I didn't come to destroy but to fulfill, for assuredly I say to you, till heaven or earth pass away, not one... Uh, I hate spell checks sometimes. I kept typing that. It's yod, Y-O-D, not Y-O-U. So after I left it, it changed it back. Y-O-D, a yod is the Hebrew letter Y, that looks like an apostrophe. It's very, very small. And uh, a tittle is like the difference between a P, the capital letter P, and a capital letter R. That little leg on the R is like a tittle. It's just a small part. You can look at the letter C and the, a small lowercase c and a lowercase o. That little bit of ink that closes the sea completely that's a tittle and this idea this phrase that not one yod not jot but one yod or tittle is a term that the most microscopic minutia of the law is going to be fulfilled that's what jesus is saying there everything is going to be fulfilled and then notice verse 519 says, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, that is, what are they doing? They are reinterpreting. They're the ones who were not fulfilling the law because they taught their own interpretation of the law. And Jesus is straightening out their interpretation of the law. They were teaching men a false interpretation and he says they would be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does and teaches them accurately, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus recognized the importance of worship together, going to synagogue, going to the temple, 
and and worshiping there and where the word the torah was at the very center but jesus critiqued their worship in, in many ways he first of all he warned against performing acts of worship for the sake of a- approbation or recognition from others and every one of these examples I'm going to mention, I've seen done in in, uh, just amazing ways in conservative evangelical churches. But but Jesus talks about these as, and it's all about men always want to corrupt worship and make it about themselves. First of all, just in the area of giving. Jesus said that giving was to be private. It was to be done in secret and inconspicuous. It's hypocritical to draw attention to oneself in worship because worship isn't about me. It's not about you. It's not about a singer. It is not about a musician. It is about Jesus. There are some church traditions where the choir and the mu- everybody is in the back behind the congregation, and they are, as it were, giving strength to the congregation in their singing. They're grounded upon those, but you don't see who they are, and there's no recognition of them because it's not about them. It's about the Lord. It is theocentric. Jesus said, Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory for men. Assuredly, I say to you, they will have their reward. It's interesting how Jesus says this several times, that if you do it for approbation of men, you'll get your reward, but here, not not in heaven. Verse 3, But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Trust me, much better to get God's reward in heaven than any recognition from anybody here on earth. But I have seen churches that when they take up a collection, everybody files to the front of the church, and you know who's giving what, and all kinds of things. It's just terrible. Prayer. Pray in secret. Don't pray so everybody will know that you're praying. Uh, when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. And he's talking about this, the, the, the Pharisees. See, they would make a big show of going through the prayer and fingering their talit, their prayer shawl. Jesus said, when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say, they will have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who's in secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you do pray, don't use vain repetitions as the heathen do. Now, that's an interesting word. Now, every one of us, and you'll note this when people pray in public or they pray at prayer meeting, that everybody has certain idiosyncrasies when they pray. Sometimes they repeat certain phrases over and over again. I remember when I was a camp counselor, there was another, later he was a counselor, but he was a really good high school kid, really solid, came from a good family. I knew the whole family and all of his older brothers. But he would, he would say, oh, Lord, about every fourth word. And it would just, it's like saying, you know, every fourth or fifth word, you know. And we say, you know. And so, oh, just would drive me nuts. I never said anything, but it would drive me nuts. That's not what this is talking about. The word here is in the in the Greek. 
and which sounds like just saying bada 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 bada. It, it was gibberish. It's speaking in tongues. This is one, nobody goes to this passage to argue against tongue speech, and that's what this is talking about. The word bada logia refers to logia is words that are meaningless, that are just gibberish. And so that's what it's talking about, and um, because the heathen had glossolalia in their esoteric and mystical worship. Uh, and they think they'll be heard for their many words. This isn't talking about public prayer. This isn't even talking about lengthy public prayer. All of that can be very legitimate. This is about doing it for the sake of being known and seen for what you're saying and what you're doing. So uh, giving should be in secret. Prayer should be in secret other than in, in, a, uh, in a worship service. Another example of the negative on prayer is the parable that he tells of the righteous man, the Pharisee, and a tax collector. Two men go to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed because he wants everybody to see him. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, even as this tax collector over here. I'm not like everybody else. Aren't I great? I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all I possess. So he's going to get his reward right then and there, not in heaven. The tax collector, who's exhibiting true humility and understands grace, is standing afar off and would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I've got nothing worthwhile. So that's the contrast. It's not based on self-righteousness. Then you had fasting. Now, fasting, I've said this when I've talked about fasting before, and I'm going to correct myself, that there's no mandate for fasting in the Scripture, no general mandate for fasting in the Scripture. You do have fasting mandated for Yom Kippur and for a couple of other feast times that's very restricted to a specific time. But you don't have any general commands for fasting anywhere in the Scriptures. And I've heard of and new pastors who say, well, we're fasting this week. Really? How are you doing that? Well, we're not going to have coffee, and we're not going to eat sugar, and we're not going to do this. We're going to keep this out of our diet or that out of our diet. No, no a fast means you're not going to eat. And biblically, a fast means you're not eating because you're so consumed and concerned with some issue that you're taking all of your time in food preparation to pray to God. That's what biblical fasting is. You are consumed with taking these prayers to God, and you don't have time. Because back in those days, you couldn't grab a microwave dinner and stick it in the microwave for five minutes and sit down and eat in five, in a total of six or seven minutes. It took you half a day to, to get and prepare your food. So fasting meant that you, you weren't going to take up five or six hours with food preparation you were going to spend that time in, in prayer. But very few people think it through like that. So fasting was done out in the open, and Jesus says, moreover, when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. They, they would walk around looking like, oh, I'm starving to death. I feel I'm weak. And they want everybody to think they're so great because they're fasting. And again, Jesus says, well, they have their reward, but 
implication like everything else, but they won't have it from God. The other problem was legalism. And this particularly showed up when Jesus heals someone on Sabbath. For example, we have the episode here from Matthew 12, 9 to 11, uh, talking about uh, he, he healed a man who had a withered hand on the Sabbath, and so he's challenged, is this lawful? Or he actually, he asked the question before he healed him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Because he wanted to set them up. He's baiting the tra- trap, and he said, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? So he's using an a fortiori argument. Sure, if you have a sheep that falls into a pit, you're going to rescue that sheep. Isn't a man worth more? Of course he is. So it's better to have a a man who is whole and healthy who can go worship in the temple than one who has who's crippled and has a a withered hand. So his conclusion is in verse 12, therefore it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And so he then healed the man. Uh, There are, uh, there's another great example where he talks about the fact in John 7, 22 to 24, that uh, he says, is is it uh, uh, lawful to, to heal a man on the Sabbath? Well, if it's lawful to circumcise a man on the Sabbath, then isn't it, uh, wouldn't it be, it's a much greater thing to make a man whole and to heal him on the Sabbath than to simply have a circumcision. In fact, there's some debate in the mission about this very issue. And so he, again, sort of hoists them on their own petard in terms of their, uh, in terms of their, their logic. So... And then last thing I want to point out is the necessary spiritual preparation. And that is not just making sure that you're cleansed of sin through confession, but if somebody has something against you, you need to make it right. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 5.23. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Application today is if you're going to pray, you're going to confess sin, and you're thinking about committing the sin, you're, you're not really getting cleansed from that sin. You've got to deal with the issue. And some people might say, well, wait a minute. You're, you're going to, to appear before the cross under the law uh, to deal with that. Well, in 1 Peter 3, 7, Peter says the same basic thing. He says, Husbands, uh, likewise, dwell with them, that is, your wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as, as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. In other words, husbands, if you're not treating your wife with honor and grace, then your prayers aren't going to get answered because if you, you may confess sin, but unless you deal with the issue, it's not going to change anything because you're just staying out of fellowship the whole time as you continue your wrong behavior. And as Jesus told the woman at the well, as she's asking him about, well, where are we going to worship when the Messiah comes here? Uh, like the Samaritans do at Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal or down in Jerusalem. And Jesus' answer is that that, that's not going to be an issue much longer. The hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. 
You worship what you do not know. We, meaning Jews, know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is. You know, this is about to change. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Now, there's two interpretive issues here. There's no capitalization in the original. So is the pneuma here, that's the Greek word for spirit, is that Holy Spirit, capital, uppercase, or lowercase? I think it's uppercase for two reasons. The mandate throughout the church age is for Christians to walk by means of the Spirit. That's the sense of the grammar, walk by means of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the means to live the spiritual life in the church age. So worship must be by means of the Spirit. We have the command to walk by means of the Spirit in Galatians 5.16. Romans 8.4 says that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So if we're not walking according to the Spirit, we don't fulfill experiential righteousness. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh, that is the sin nature, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. And then in verse 8, Paul says, so then those who are in the flesh, that is walking by the sin nature, cannot please God. It's pretty simple. That which we do under the control of the sin nature has no eternal value only when we're walking by the Spirit. So when Jesus says you must worship by means of the Spirit and truth, it's interesting, it's a Granville Sharp rule, but it means that Spirit and truth, they're not synonyms, that's not what the Granville Sharp rule means. You have one, you have one um, article that governs two, uh, two nouns, and it means they're t- closely, tightly linked together. It is God the Holy Spirit that reveals his word, God the Holy Spirit that helps us to understand and apply his word, and that is at the very core of, of, of worship. Jesus says in John seventeen seventeen, sanctify them in truth by means of your truth. Your word is truth. That, if that's the means, the word of sanctification, then that's at the very core of our spiritual growth, is to be sanctified by the Word. So what Jesus is saying is that worship in the future would be by means of the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's Word as they work together in the life of a believer. So let's wrap this up, and what have we learned? We've learned from Genesis, the end of Genesis 3, Genesis 4, that at the heart of worship is sacrifice. In the Old Testament, that sacrifice is looking forward. We remember that sacrifice at the Lord's table when we proclaim his death until he comes. Second aspect that we've seen in worship is it's a proclamation of who God is and what he has done. That comes from teaching through the Bible, teaching through the Scripture. 
Third, we've seen that throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, there's a necessity of cleansing from sin in terms of justification. When we first trust in Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, Ephesians 1, 7 says. But then when we are growing and maturing experientially, we sin, and so we have to have confession of sin for cleansing. Fifth thing we've seen is that the Scripture is always at the heart and focus of worship. And so we have to study what the Word says because that is how we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. We also worship in singing. Ephesians 5, 19, singing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs is the first result of being filled by means of the Spirit, Ephesians five eighteen, And we have so many Christians who think that singing is just some sort of secondary thing we do because we always did that on Sunday morning. It's at the very, it's, it's part of, uh, of worship. It is expressing our joy. It reminds us of who God is and what He has done. It is integral to worship. It's not the centerpiece, but it's not just some, something you can, uh, that, that's a pure elective that maybe you will and maybe you don't. It's not that important. So let's get to the really important stuff, which is the Word. That is a totally bogus, carnal attitude. Seventh, we worship in prayer. In 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3, uh, Paul tells Timothy, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. That has its application contextually within the congregation and within when wor- worship, especially for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. We worship in giving, 2 Corinthians 9, 5 through 8, as well as 1 Corinthians 6, 2. In 2 Corinthians 9, 5, Paul says, Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time. That is to make the collection ahead of time. It's planned beforehand. It's not spur of the moment. Um, to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised. In other words, he asked them to make a commitment ahead of time to give a certain amount of money. And so now he's coming back and he says, you made a commitment before and we're going to come and collect that. You need to fulfill your pledge. Now, a lot, a lot of churches do that. Uh, we don't do that, but I, I think this passage indicates that, at least in this situation, Paul seems to have done that. Um, and then he reminds them of the principle of generosity and graciousness. He says, he who sows sparingly will also weep, reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous giver, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. And then we worship by reading Scripture, 1 Timothy 4.13. Paul said, Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, and to teaching. Now, as I close, in terms of reading those passages on giving, I thought I would tell you that we have a real matter of prayer. As you know, we tend to go through this roller coaster in terms of uh, giving and the annual budget. And over the last five or six years, we've got this pattern of being, you know, somewhere around twenty-five to forty thousand uh, dollars in the in the red. 
when it comes to the middle of the summer, but by the end of the year, God supplies our needs. And I was just talking to Mark, our treasurer before class, and it looks as if the Lord has not only given us a uh, to-the-penny provision, but he has uh, provided abundantly beyond that more than sufficient. God has answered our prayers and richly supplied our, for our financial needs, so we can all be very thankful to that and God's faithfulness in taking care of this congregation so we can continue to teach the word with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this time we have to study your word, to be challenged in this whole study, to worship, to focus on you, to learn all that you have for us and to recognize that our lives need to be completely centered upon you and not upon us. Give us an awareness of our self-absorption how often we think about us and talk about us rather than t- and our problems rather than talking about you and your solutions. And Father, we pray that you would uh, just use all of this study on worship to press, push us a little for- more forward in our spiritual life and spiritual growth, worshiping you biblically. We pray in Christ's name, amen.